Yesterday, I preached on the verse from Psalm 32. Uh, Blessed is the one who knows his sin are forgiven. And I thought it would be, uh, sins are forgiven. I thought it would be interesting to preach on a verse that seems to say just the exact opposite. And this comes from Psalm 119.1. Happy are those whose way is blameless. It's uh, always a happy moment in life when you know that you are blameless. And it's a most unhappy moment when you learn that you are blameworthy. I know this as a a journalist in one small way, uh, because the slightest spelling error can be the cause of panic or depression. When I was editor of Christian History before I joined Christianity Today, in one issue we published a map of the Mediterranean region to show where important 3rd and 4th century theologians called home. So on this map were two cities named Caesarea. There's the Caesarea in Asia Minor, home to Basil the Great, and there is Caesarea in Palestine, home to the church historian Eusebius. And both are correctly spelled C-A-E-S-A-R-E-A. Now, I've never liked the word Caesar or Caesarea uh, because it seems to me that it should be spelled like any normal word that has a long E sound, C-E-A-S-A-R. But no, some clever ancient fellow decided it should be C-A-E-S-A-R. Well, when the issue was printed in which the map appeared, I saw immediately that on one place on the map, Caesarea was spelled correctly, And on another place on the map, a mere two inches away, it was spelled incorrectly. Now, when this sort of thing happens in an editorial office, the heart of everyone freezes, anyone who had anything to do with the file. And the first thing we think is, was this my fault? And the next thing we do is to try to rationalize why it isn't my fault. So the point editor will think the editor should have caught this, the editor will think the copy editor should have caught this, and so on and so forth. And when we discover that the source of the mistake lies elsewhere, we breathe a sigh of relief because, as the Bible says, happy is the editor who is blameless. (laughs) Now, in this case, there was no way for me to be happy because it turned out to be my fault. How unhappy is the editor whose way is blameworthy? Now, in the larger scheme of things, this is a small thing to be unhappy about, and yet when it comes to matters of blame, they are often very small, and yet in our hearts and minds they become very big. And that's because there's something deep within us that knows happy are those whose way is blameless, and the converse, how unhappy are those who are blameworthy. This tension is often seen in marriage. So you you come back from the grocery store having forgotten to buy milk. Your spouse looks in the grocery bag and says, Honey, you forgot the milk. Insert long, guilty pause, swearing under one's breath. Well, you were supposed to email me to remind me. Remember, I told you to do that. Otherwise, I'd forget you didn't remind me. I'm not your secretary. I told you before you left this morning, I can't believe you can't remember a simple thing like this, that I have to write everything to you in an email. But you said you would remind me. So as soon as you said that, I put it out of my mind. It's not my fault you have a bad memory. Well, what's the point of being married if we don't both pull our weight? What do you mean? Who is watching the children while you're off playing golf and going to work? And on it goes. Thrust and parry, attack and defend, assault and retreat, 
all over a gallon of milk as if peace in the Middle East would break out if we could just figure out who was responsible for forgetting that gallon of milk. That's because we know that it's not about milk. It's not about correct spelling or anything else. It's, we know instinctively that our happiness is on the line. Happy are those whose way is blameless. So we'll do anything. We'll even try to put the blame on someone we truly love. We'll even try to put the blame on someone we vowed in front of God and everyone that we'll honor and cherish so that we can say, well, I'm blameless. Now, of course, it's not always silly stuff. Most of us live with a dark memory about something that we did that had terrible consequences, a youthful indiscretion we don't care to talk about, a momentary lack of apparent parental attention that brought injury to a child, a decision to buy a home we couldn't afford, and the consequences of the bad decision just roll over you and over you for years, if not decades. Some decisions for which we are to blame have a lifetime of consequences. And we beat ourselves. What was I thinking? How could I have been so stupid? Will we ever recover from this? And, and, and in front of others, we smile and laugh because we like to pretend we're moving on like our culture insists that we do. But whenever that memory of that mistake comes to mind, the pang of sadness shoots through us again and we know the converse of our text. How unhappy are those who know they are to blame. Christian theology says this yearning for blamelessness goes very deep. At its root, it's, it's a desire to be blameless before God, of course, a holy God. We were made by a good and loving creator, and we know instinctively that we are called to be good and loving, that, uh, that this is our deepest nature, that this is what it means to be human, to be a child of God, and to have an open, free, and loving relationship with our creator. And, and yet, and, and yet, except for some small spurts here and there, we're just not that good or that loving, at least not to the degrees that we can boldly say of ourselves, happy am I whose way is blameless. And we live with this uncomfortable feeling that, that we're letting ourselves down, we're letting others down, we're letting God down. Because we look at our lives and there's just so much blame to go around. And our minds are peppered with a multitude of shoulds and oughts that we seem incapable of fulfilling. And if we happen to fulfill them, a whole new set of shoulds and oughts rise to the surface to take their place. So, when we read a verse like this, we now begin to wonder if Scripture is merely mocking us. Happy are those whose way is blameless. Well, yeah, but then who can be happy? That's precisely the dilemma that thoughtful people through the ages have keenly felt. The philosopher Augustine, in his Confessions, which he wrote in midlife, recalled an incident in his youth that apparently troubled him for years. Something that he was wise enough to see, for all its triviality, reveals something deeply truthful about the human situation. There was a pear tree to, uh, close to our own vineyard, he wrote heavily laden with fruit, which was not tempting either for its color or for its flavor. Late one night, having prolonged our games in the streets until then, as was our bad habit, a group of young scoundrels, and I among them, went to shake and rob this tree. We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O oh God. 
Such was my heart. The Apostle Paul, collecting a a number of Old Testament texts, put it this way in language that is frankly stark and shocking. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Now, I don't think he means that literally, for even the worst of human beings do some good. I think what he's saying is that so much blame remains after the good we've done. It says, if we haven't done any good in the first place. But it's right here, in a place that makes us feel the most uncomfortable and the most unhappy, where we find a space where Christians can display honesty, courage, and humility grounded in grace. Paul expresses this in a number, the reason for this in a number of ways, but none so succinctly than this. While we were sinners, blameworthy as blameworthy could be, Christ died for us. This is remarkable news. We don't have to play the many games we are wont to play pretending that, no, we really aren't to blame, or that we may be to blame, but it isn't really all that bad. No, we really are to blame. That sense that we have about ourselves is exactly right. And yes, it really is as bad as we suspect. So bad, in fact, that when God wanted to rectify it, he said nothing less than his own self-sacrifice in Jesus Christ would be sufficient. But despite the grave reality that resides within our hearts, the manifest blamefulness of our lives, God says... It is forgiven. Not ignored, not denied, but forgiven. When we know we live in a reality that's both uh, grounded and covered by grace, well, it, it makes all the difference. It frees us to move from a posture of defensiveness and accusation to one of love and compassion. One evening I was driving with my wife and my son in law's parents. And I started up through an intersection after the light turned green, only to be suddenly hit by a car coming from the left. And my first thought was not, is everyone okay, but did I just go through a red light? Is it my fault? Now, after assuring myself it wasn't my fault, I was able to ask about the welfare of others. But I have to admit that the the process was just almost instantaneous, that self-justification came first. So I got out of my car and I approached the other driver and naturally I began to prepare my defense because as these things go, I was sure the other driver was going to blame me or say it wasn't his fault or make some excuse. Uh, But I had collected myself so I was able to ask the civil thing, are are you okay? And he said, yes, and then added, I am so sorry. This was completely my fault. Well, what could I say then? You better believe it, buddy. Look what you've done to my car. No, I couldn't. And then he added, I'm so busted. This is my second accident in a month. I don't know what's going to happen to my insurance. And then my heart, this amazing little miracle, went from self-justification to compassion all on its own like this. I didn't have to call up any heroic ethics. I didn't have to make a huge effort to act with love. It was in the presence of humility and confession that all of a sudden kindness and compassion just sprung forth. When a life is grounded in the grace of God given us in Christ, it has this way of opening up the rivers of grace. When something goes wrong, 
whether it's something as small as forgetting milk or as big as betraying a friend, and someone accuses us, well, we can have the honesty and courage to say, hmm, well, you know, I'm the type of person who could do that sort of thing. I'm really a person who does blameworthy things time and again, so it doesn't really surprise me that you're accusing me of this, and I may very well have done that, so let's just look at the facts of the matter. And then if we were to discover that indeed we are to blame, we can have a humility to simply say, well, look at that. I blew it again. I'm sorry. We don't have to fight. We don't have to defend. We don't have to attack or anything else. And you'll be amazed how often that changes the tenor of the conversation with others. All of a sudden, empathy and love enter the room. And then, if we further see that we are indeed to blame, we don't have to get morose and beat our breasts and act like we've done something that is unforgivable and life will never be the same after this. Because it is, in fact, forgivable. It is, in fact, forgiven. So much so, the Bible says, it's as if we had no blame in the first place. Paul puts it this way, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. In Christ, and only in Christ, we can really say with the psalmist, happy are those whose way is blameless, because in Christ it's as if it is. Amen. Amen.